and we are in Mark chapter 6 today. I will be reading from the, the ESV version, Mark chapter 6. The passage for today is verse 45 through to verse 52. It's a very well-known passage about Jesus uh, walking on water. Um, Mark chapter 6, verse 45 to 52, and I'll read this for us. Please follow along. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking out on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Amen. Amen. Um, as we begin, um, let me pray for us. Uh, let me pray for myself and the preaching of the word of God, uh, that God will speak to us. So would you join me in prayer? Um, yeah, God, we just want to come before you um, and we confess that we need you. Uh, we need you today in our lives. We need you this very moment um, to speak to us, uh, to take uh, you know, this message and to make it more than the words of man, uh, that it will truly be uh, you speaking uh, through me, uh, revealing your word to us in our time and the struggles that we're facing. Um, God, we've been in lockdown for a long time, um, and there's a lot of turmoil around us and inside us. And so speak to that struggle uh, that we're in. Uh, despite Zoom and uh, despite distractions and the difficulty of um, being online, I pray that you would work powerfully today, that we might meet with you, uh, that we might meet, meet with the living God. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, any parent or teacher would know uh, that you know, human beings are filled with questions, right? But uh, parents and teachers know, especially kids, right? Kids are, are just filled with questions. They get to a certain age where you know, they start talking and then the questions just start pouring out, right? It's uh, what's this? What's that? You know, what's the, this called? You know, what color is that? What does that do? Right? A lot of what questions come, um, but the what questions aren't the difficult ones to answer. Uh, it's the why questions that are hard, right? The why, right? So what color is the sky? Easy. Blue. Why is the color of the sky blue? Right. That's the hard one. That's a great question, Ruben. You know, go ask your mom. Right. So the why questions are always the harder questions for us to figure out. And that's true for us as adults, too. And I think one of the places that the why questions really emerge and they really matter to us is in the midst of the storms, right? the storms of life, in the midst of pain and difficulty. Why right? comes up in our hearts and we cry it out. Often we cry it up to heaven, to God. And today we're going to look at two of these why questions. And I'm going to try to answer them from the passage. Um, number one, why do you take me out of good and put me in the storm? Right? Why do you allow me to go through suffering? Right? Why do you put me in the storm? That's the first why. And the second why is why do you wait so long before you show up and answer me? Right? So why do you put me in the storm? Right? That's God's purpose. 
And then why do you wait so long? Right, that's God's timing. So we're going to look at these two why questions, and I hope to give us an answer. And I want to put a caveat right from the start that I don't presume that what I'm going to say is going to answer everything, right? Because, you know, the storms that God allows in our lives, the difficulty and pain, it's very complex. And you know, at any given moment, I think God is working out maybe 10 different things in our lives. But I'm going to say that this is, um, you know, I think often present. Right? This is often one of the reasons God is allowing the storm. So, so we're just going to tackle it today. And so number one, let's look at God's purpose in the storm. Right? Why does he allow pain and difficulty in our lives? Um, you know, when we come to the start of our passage today, uh, the disciples uh, have caught a break. Right? For the first time in a long time, it seems like things are going well. Right? If you remember through the you know, chapter six, you, you may not, let me give you a recap. Uh, things are tough all throughout chapter six. It's like one after another, um, they're confronted by difficulty. At the start of chapter six, Jesus and his disciples, they go to his hometown, uh, the place where it should be, you know, the best, they should be uh, welcomed the warmest, um, but the ones who should receive him best receive him the worst, right? They reject him, right? And then next we see Jesus send out his disciples, and in the midst of all of the things that Jesus tells them, one of the things he talks about is this is what you do when people reject you, right? Implying that just as he was rejected, you're going to get rejected as well. And then after they're sent out and before they return, we get this flashback of how John the Baptist's head was beheaded. And it's as if, you know, we're just reminded, by the way, it's, it's tough, right? The Christian life is tough. Right? Jesus is rejected in his hometown. The disciples are sent out, by the way, you might be rejected. And do you remember this guy? He was rejected, right? and he was beheaded because he you know, followed God. But last week, right, they got a break. Right? If you remember last week, Peter talked about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he did this tremendous miracle. Right? Really fascinating to me. Right? How, how, how does this miracle work? Like, did, like no, I don't know. Like I talked about this once, like if you break the bread and you've got only half a loaf left, like how, how does that loaf end up feeding you know, thousands of people? When does it multiply? Right. I don't know. Anyway, there was this huge response from the crowd. If you read John chapter six, what he says in uh, the gospel of John, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming to the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they see this miracle and they're like, this is the prophet. This is the one we're waiting for. Let's make him king. So for the first time in a long time, things are good. The disciples have caught a break, right? They're not being rejected like all the rest of chapter six. Finally, we found people who are receptive. They like what we're doing, right? They're not trying to kill us, but they, they want to make Jesus king, right? They're calling him the prophet. Right? things seems like things are going really well. And you just want to stay in that place, right? You just want to linger in that moment when you're not being persecuted. You want to hang out with these people because they're listening to you. Or maybe we should build off the momentum of their receptiveness so that we can see what better things can be done. Right? It's a good place. You just want to stay there. And so it's very curious that when we read our verses today, that the first thing that Jesus does is to take them out of what seems to be a good place. And then he throws them into the storm, right? So verse 45, we read, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat 
and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So rather than staying in that good place, right, because they're receptive, you think you don't want to keep doing ministry there, it says immediately. He makes his disciples go into the boat. Now, he made his disciples get into the boat. That phrase is a strong expression in the Greek. It's urgent. There's pressure. It's as if the disciples don't want to leave and they're reluctant and Jesus is forcing them to go. And then he takes this crowd that wants to hang around with Jesus and making king and he scatters them right, and makes them go away. And so here's the question. Why? Or why does Jesus take them out of what seems to be a good place and then throw the disciples into the storm? Now, why does God do that into our lives? When life seems to be going well, we're in a good spot, life is comfortable, work is good, relationships are flourishing. It seems that God yanks us out of that good, comfortable place, and then he throws us into the deep end of some storm. Or if he doesn't do it, at least he allows this pain and the difficulty into our lives. Right Out of nowhere, someone uh, you hear about someone is sick, there's an illness or there's a death, there's problems at work or with finances. Relationships start breaking down. There's an issue at home or with your family or your kids. Why? Right? Why does God take us out of the good and throw us into the storm? Now, surely the disciples are thinking this. They're straining in the storm. We're going to find later on. They're straining in the midst of this storm, right? being pushed back by the waves. And they're probably thinking, we could have stayed back at the shore in that comfortable place with a good crowd around us who honor us and respect us. Now, why does Jesus throw us into this place? And the answer I'm going to say is that Jesus does this in love you know, because he wants to expose the idols in our lives. Now, why does Jesus allow this? Because he wants to expose the idols in our lives. Now, again, I don't think this is always the case, but I think quite often one of the things God may be doing in the midst of difficulty is to show you what you love too much, right? That isn't him. Now, let's look at the crowds. You know, on the surface level, it seemed like the crowds were receptive to Jesus, right? We saw in the Gospel of John, they say he's the prophet and they want to make him king. Right, but listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus says to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And what Jesus is basically saying is, you're trying to make me king, not for me, but for you. You're trying to make me king because it will benefit you. The purpose of the miracle of the sign was made, meant to cause people to see the power and glory of Jesus, right? Wow, look at this, this amazing person who just multiplied this bread and fish. He's so powerful. And he's so glorious. I want to make my life about him, all about him. But the crowd, they're not doing that, even though it seems like they're doing that. They're trying to make his life about them, right? Do you see that? They're trying to make him king, not for Jesus' sake, but for their sake. And the reason why is because they're thinking, man, if this guy becomes king, he can feed us every day. Imagine how much time we'd save. Imagine how much money we'd save. I could quit my job and I could lay back and maybe I can retire early. It would be so great for me if he became king. Right? They're really driven out of love for themselves. This is, again, idolatry. 
We see the same thing happening with the disciples, right? The disciples are reluctant to leave, right? That's the, well, how the phrasing is, is set. And why? You ask why. And you could say, well, maybe because they want to um, stay and um, make Jesus' name famous, right? What a great opportunity, right? The, the people are receptive. Let's, let's build off the momentum for the glory of Jesus, right? Is, is that why? You know, at the end of our passage in the last verse, Mark 6, verse 52, Mark says, the disciples did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened, right? Just like the crowds, the disciples, they didn't understand the miracle that we saw last week. Their hearts were hardened, right? So they too, like the crowds, didn't see Jesus and say, wow, you are so glorious. I want to make it all about you. They, like the crowds, were still in that place where they were making it about themselves. And so the reason they wanted to stay wasn't for Jesus. It was for themselves. And when you think about it, it makes sense. How refreshing would it be to just stay in a place where you're not being persecuted? You feel good that there's fruit of ministry. People are taking care of you and honoring you. Right? They don't want to go back to, you know, living on the, uh, on the traveling and sleeping on the ground and being rejected by people. No, no, no. I don't want that. It's better for me to stay here. Right? And most importantly, if Jesus did become king, he would receive power, honor, respect, wealth, and comfort. And all of that would trickle down to them. So let's stay here for the glory of God when really it's for themselves. And if you think I'm being harsh um, to the disciples, only a few chapters later in Mark chapter 10, two of the disciples, they pull Jesus aside and they ask Jesus, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Right? We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's like a genie in a bottle moment. They're like, you know, rub the genie. Well, I've got one wish, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, what do you want? And they say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Right? They're saying, you know, don't worry about this other 10 guys. Make sure that when you are, are glorified and they think he's going to become an earthly king, can, can we be the ones on your right and left? The ones who get the power and the prestige and the honor? Let that be us, right? They're just thinking about themselves, driven by idolatry. But this reminds me of a story um, Charles Spurgeon once told about a king uh, who ruled over everything in the land. And one day a gardener, he came to the king and he had grown this enormous carrot. And he comes to the king with this carrot and says, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown. And therefore I want to give it to you as a gift because I love you. And the king took this enormous carrot and he was touched. And as the gardener was about to leave, the king stopped him and he said, wait, I can see you are a good steward of the earth. I give you this big plot of land freely that you can tend to it and that you can garden it. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and he went home rejoicing. And as this was all going on, there was a nobleman in the king's court who saw this and overheard it. And he thought to himself, if the king would give a, a, a plot of land for a carrot, Imagine what he'd give for something better. And so the next day, this nobleman, he came back to the king with, with a, like a handsome black stallion. And he comes to the king and says, Lord, this is the best horse that I've ever bred. 
and I give it to you as a gift, right? Because I love you. And the king said, thank you. And the nobleman started walking away, but the king didn't stop him. And he was like confused and he turned around and he just, he was like, well, Lord, king, I just got to ask, how, how come you gave the guy yesterday a plot of land, but you're not giving me anything? And the king answered him, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. And this is kind of what's happening in this story. The people, the crowds are you know, supposedly exalting Jesus, but they're not doing it for him. They're doing it for themselves. And the disciples, they could have come up with many reasons for their, why they wanted to stay. But really, they were doing it not for Jesus, but for themselves. They were doing this for them. This is love of self. This is idolatry. These things aren't bad things. Security, comfort, you know, not being persecuted, um, you know, being respected and honored. But these people were, were loving these things more than Jesus himself. You know, on the surface, everything seems great, right? Big miracle, great response, no hostility. It seems like they're in a good place. But beneath the surface on a heart level, where it really matters, they're in a very bad place, a very dangerous place, because the people were chasing and feeding their idolatry and using Jesus to get there. And the worst thing that Jesus could have done in that moment to the crowd the worst thing that he could have done to the disciples is to leave them there and give them what they want because it would have only fed their idolatry. And the most loving thing for Jesus to have done is to take them out of the good, the good place, and to throw them into the storm so that they would recognize their idolatry and begin to let it go. You know, our hearts, even as Christians, are deceptive. Oftentimes, it's not easy to discern between I'm doing this for Jesus and I'm doing this for myself. Right? Like the crowds and like the disciples. We chase things and we say, for the glory of God. Uh, but when deep in our hearts, um, like maybe it's not really. You know, we chase success in work and you know you can say i want to be a good steward of you know the gifts that i have but is it really you know i want to i want to date someone and get married you know because because god has designed us to have great families and disciples kids and you you know you come up with good stuff but is it really is it really for him we want security and long life and we want health and we want ministry to grow we want church we want kingsway to do well i do but is it for God or is it really for me? God in his loving discipline may take us out of that good place. Comfortable, flourishing, prosperous, things are going well place. Because oftentimes when we're there, we start to love those things too much. We live for those things too much. And to wake us up, he pulls us out and he throws us into the storm. These things aren't bad things. Security, wealth, success in work, promotions. These are good things. I once heard it said, but when a good thing becomes a God thing, it's become a bad thing. Right? When a good thing becomes a God thing, it's become a bad thing. That's when it becomes an idol. And then we better do something. 
And by God's grace, if we don't do something, he would, right? He'll take us out of that place and throw us into the storm. You know, we've been enduring through this pandemic, and I'm confident that uh, it's surfaced within each of us, discomfort, worry, complaints. And could it be uh, that in the midst of, you know, this, this horrible pandemic, uh, that God has a purpose? And one of the things that God has been doing is exposing the idols in your life. As he makes you uncomfortable, as he takes things away from you, um, as you're confronted by, you know, struggle, could it be that he's revealing things in your heart that you love too much? Or why are you so worried? Why are you so upset? Why are you so bitter and angry right, about those things? Right? Is it because you've been holding on to them too much? You know, oftentimes it's when they're taken from us and then we long and yearn for them that we actually realize, wow, this really mattered to me so much. Right? Could it be that the storm has revealed the idols in your life? You know, we know something is an idol or has become an idol when we will love God less when he takes it away. Right? We know when something has become an idol when we will love God less when he takes it away. Right? Think about the things that you have in your life. I can think of like a few things. I think of my kids. I think, man, if God took them away, would I love God less? And that's a real struggle that we really just need to be honest with ourselves. Because if, if we're willing to love God less about those things, then that means uh, I've loved those things too much. Right? I've loved them even more than God. Right? And, and I'm not saying if, if God takes something away, we lament, right? we go through TCAT, right? complain, yes, yes. But you know, along the way, eventually, right? will you still love God and praise him? Uh, the crowds wanted to um, Jesus to be king, um, but the moment he takes that away, you know, so many of them turn their back on him. And so what is it? Security, comfort, work, your plans, your health, a long life. Or maybe God is revealing the idols in your life. Maybe that's the purpose. Or what is God doing? Why does he take you out of the good and put you in the bad? What's his purpose? To reveal those things that you love. There's idols in your life. Let's go to number two, God's timing. Look at God's purpose. Right? One of the reasons he allows suffering is to show our hearts to ourselves. And number two, we're going to look at God's timing in the storm. Because as we read on, there's another really kind of confusing thing that Jesus does. Uh, verse 47, it says, when evening came, uh, the boat was out on the sea. Right? The disciples are in that boat. And Jesus was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, we'll come back to that, the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, verse 47, it puts the time at evening, right? When evening came, that's uh, between, I googled this, it was like 6 to 9 p.m., right? That's, that's technically what evening is. It says Jesus is alone, and he sees his disciples, he sees them struggling, making headway painfully, it says. The Gospel of Matthew says they're beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And so Jesus is praying, and maybe he sees with his eyes, or supernaturally, or oh, the disciples are struggling. It's around 6 to 9 p.m., so what does he do? He goes to them, right? Straight away. No, that's not what he does. It says, at the fourth watch of the night, 
he came to them. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so Jesus waits about nine hours before he goes to his disciples. He waits nine hours. He's like, oh, they're struggling. Let me just wait a little bit. Set, uh, Siri set a timer for nine, nine hours. And he waits before he goes. Well, why does he do that? Right, that's the second puzzling question we have, right? When we're in the midst of a storm, we're crying out to God, God save me, God provide for me, God fix this. Um, it's like we pray and we, we want him to answer immediately. We want him to fix the problem straight away. And, and yet it feels like we're just waiting. Right? What's with God's timing? Why does he wait so long? Right, that's the second question. Some of us, we've waited nine hours or nine months or nine years. Or maybe we have to wait until we get to heaven before he will answer. And the question is why? And I'm just going to give one of the answers. This story uh, reminds me of another story in John chapter 11. Um, Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, is sick. And so they send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. And so in John chapter 11, verse 4, it says, when Jesus heard it, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And so he's just saying the whole point of all of this is so that God and Jesus may be glorified. Okay. And then verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verse 5. He loves them. Verse six, so he waits two days. He loves them, so he waits. And we think, hey, that's not how it works. If you love them, Jesus, you drop whatever you're doing and go to them straight away. But the passage says that because Jesus loved them, he waits. And the reason why is Jesus loves them enough to not give them what they want so that he would give them what they need. And what the people want is, again, comfortable life. We want things to be easy. We want people to be healthy. All of this stuff. This is what I want. But what they need, what they need is to see Jesus in all of his glory so that they would believe in him and have him as their Lord and Savior. That is what they need. And in order to get what they need, he waits. Because it's, it's when he waits and we exhaust ourselves, and we get to the end of ourselves, and we're utterly defeated, that we are then ready to really see his glory and his power and his beauty, and then to believe in him and hold on to him. So if you know that story, Jesus waits. He waits two days, so that by the time he gets to Lazarus, Lazarus isn't just sick, but he's dead. And Lazarus isn't just dead, he's been dead for four days. And this is important because for the Jews, they believe that the spirit of a person hovered over the body for three days and maybe they'll get better. But by the fourth day, no way. Give up. There's no hope. So Jesus waits for that moment for everyone to like their hope to be depleted, for their you know, own efforts to be exhausted, for them to say, we can't fix this. There's no way we can fix this. He waits for that moment. So that when he shows up and he responds, that he is seen most glorious, that his power is most clearly on display. 
and so that people might see him there and might believe in him right, and give him glory. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this passage. He waits. He waits nine hours so the disciples are exhausted so that when he walks on water toward them, his glory will be displayed most clearly. Right, if you read verse 49 to 51, Mark chapter 6, our passage, it says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. And that it is I is um, from kind of an echo of what uh, the burning bush said to Moses, what God said to Moses, I am. He's saying, I am, I'm God. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. The ghost, they're crying out, terrified, and they're astounded. Right? Matthew says that they worshipped him, and they said, truly you are the son of God. You know, this is the picture of a people who were just brought to the end of themselves. They're so terrified that they're, they're, th they're believing in ghosts and stuff, you know, and they're crying out and, um, and, and when they see Jesus, they're, they're astounded, right? If Jesus didn't wait, their response would have been nothing like this. Right? I want you to imagine um, Jesus sends them out on the boat and then uh, he walks to them immediately. Right? How would they respond? I imagine the disciples would be in the boat and the sun's shining and the birds are chirping and they're trading stories about what just happened on the shore, right? Peter's like, I, I, I turned around, you know, I took the last loaf of bread, but when I turned back, the basket was full of loaves. Ah, and, you know, they're talking about that stuff. And I don't know, yeah, if Jesus becomes king, I'm going to take the biggest room in the palace. And they're taking jokes and laughing, you know, life is good. And then Jesus, he walks on the water next to them. I think their response would be like, excitement or like whoa do you see that you know if it was today they'd pull out their phones and take a photo you know um create an instagram story or whatever those things are called you know i think that would have been their reaction they would have been amused but they would not have been amazed but jesus waits he waits nine hours until the disciples are exhausted beaten by the waves by not for nine hours Exhausted of all their strength, their power, their self-dependence, thinking, are we even going to get out of this alive? Their arms are on fire. They've strained. They've given it all they could give, and they know they need some help to get out of this, shaken to the core. And then in that moment, they turn, and then they see Jesus walking on the waves. They see him walking over the waves that have overwhelmed them. He strolls over the storms that have smashed over them. And their response is not amusement. It is amazement. Because Jesus waited. Because he waited until they had exhausted themselves. That is why Jesus waits so often. Because it is when we are depleted of ourselves, when we are weak, when we are most desperate, that we are ready to really appreciate his power and glory and respond in the appropriate way when he shows up, when he answers, that we would be amazed and that we praise him. Now, there's a part of the story that we don't find in the Gospel of Mark, 
we find it in the Gospel of Matthew. And I, I think it's because Peter, the Apostle Peter, he's one of the main informants to the Gospel of Mark. And so maybe out of humility or shame, uh, I don't think he shared this part of the story because it's about Peter. It's the part, it's the part where Peter walks on water. Right? You know that part of, of, of the story. It's in Matthew's Gospel. I think it's one of the most beautiful moments in scripture. I, I love this moment. Um, the disciples are being smashed by the waves. Uh, they see Jesus walking on the water. And what Matthew says in Matthew 14, verse 28, he says, Peter answered Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. I love this moment because this is what it's all about. This is the end goal of everything that has happened. The, the taking you out of the good place, throwing you in the storm, waiting nine hours, and then walking on the water. It's really to get to this moment, I believe. Because when you think about what Peter's saying here, it's crazy. It's just absurd. He's saying, he's saying, Jesus, oh, I'll, I'll go to you. Because, you know, they've been straining for nine hours against the storm. The waves have just pummeled them, right? Crushed them. And the only thing that has kept them alive and not drowned into the bottom of the water is their boat. It's this the boat that they're in. That's the only reason they're safe, secure. And any form of comfort they have is because they have this piece of wood surrounding them, keeping them afloat. But when Jesus sees, when Peter sees Jesus in all of his glory, walking on the water, he says, you know what? I'd rather be with you in the storm than be without you in this boat. Right? I'd rather be there in the heart of the storm and leave what is to me everything. All of my comfort, all of my security, right? all where my hope might lie, I'll, I'll leave that aside because I'd rather be with you. Right? That's what Jesus is ultimately trying to teach us. He's trying to teach that to Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all the disciples, that he is better than all that we have, and it's better than anything we might lose. You know, back on the shore, Peter and the disciples were chasing after security and comfort and wealth and power. But now after everything they've gone through, after everything God has taken them through, it's like Peter gets a light bulb moment. And he says, you know, all the things that I chased, I don't, I, they, they don't matter to me as much as you matter to me. And I'd rather be with you than have security and comfort, right? I think that's tremendous. And that's really where we want to end up to in, in our pain and difficulty. You know, it's one thing to, as a Christian, just to get through difficulty, like to, just to grit our teeth and for it to pass, for circumstances to change, to get through and be like, well, I'm just so glad that that has passed because that was horrible. I hated that. It's another thing to be in the midst of the suffering and the difficulty and to say, you know what? As long as I have Jesus, it's okay. Uh, it doesn't matter that, that I'm in the midst of a storm. It doesn't matter all that you know, I, I might have lost. It's okay as long as I have Christ. Right? It was worth it. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's saying, you know, in my life, I've, I've lost and suffered all these things, but it's okay because they never mattered anyway because in the end I gained Christ. And he was better than all of those things. You know, when we go through suffering, you don't want to end up being, man, I just wish I had those things I've lost. Because then you've, you've misunderstood the purpose of what God is taking you through. Right? To, to lose, let's say, financial security and to spend the whole time just wishing I had it, I had it, I had it. Then you haven't really come to the conclusion God would want you to come to. He, he, he makes us lose these things so that we would realize we never needed those things and make us realize it's okay because I have Christ, right? That's where we want to end up in. And so today, I conclude, we saw two things. We saw God's purpose in the storm and we saw God's timing in the storm. God's purpose, we ask, you know, why do you take me out of the good and put me into the storm? What's his purpose? You know, I said, one of the things is to expose our idols. Uh, the good may not be good, maybe bad because you're idolizing those things. Maybe you've made them God things. And out of love, Jesus takes you out of that place so that you can see how much you have loved those things. And God's timing, why does he wait so long? You know, I think often God waits until we're exhausted, until we're at the end of ourselves, until we've given up on, you know, all these things so that when we see him, uh, that we are truly amazed and not amused, that we will give him glory and really say, you're, you're everything I needed. Right? All these other things really don't matter to me. You're better than all those things I once loved before you put me in the storm. And so, you know, we're all going through some form of struggle. Um, you know, maybe that's one of the things that God is trying to do in your life today.